Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for Episode 77, The Space Shuttle, Part 3. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has started. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Last week, we wrapped up talking about Sally Ride, the first American woman to fly in space as part of the STS-7 mission, Space Shuttle Challenger's second flight. But Challenger wasn't done making history and setting precedents just yet. You see, STS-8 would also be a Challenger mission, and Guy Bluford, one of the TFNG astronaut class's four minorities, three African Americans and one Asian American, would become America's first minority astronaut in space. STS-8 was a picture-perfect mission that would orbit the Earth 98 times over six days and release the Indian National Satellite, the first of a series of satellites that today makes up the largest domestic communication system in the Indo-Pacific region. Blueford would serve as a mission specialist on three more shuttle missions, including Challenger's ninth and final successful flight. Up to this point, we've seen many good outcomes from the shuttle program, but all that changed on a clear and bitterly cold Florida morning in January 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger's 10th launch. This mission was NASA's 25th shuttle mission. Unfortunately, I can't just use the mission number and have you intuitively know what mission we're on anymore like I have been able to up to this point. The first nine shuttle transport system launch numbers were conveniently called STS-1, STS-2, STS-3, and so on until STS-9. However, following STS-9, the numbering system was changed. Why, you might ask? In a word, superstition. James Begg took over as NASA administrator around the time of the first shuttle flight, and he was something of a triskaidekaphobic. He felt the number 13 was unlucky. He vividly remembered Apollo 13 and wanted to make sure that there was no STS-13, so once the shuttle missions hit double digits, he had the numbering system reworked. Following STS-9, each mission was assigned a code, For example, the 10th mission was called STS-41 Bravo. The first digit indicated the federal fiscal year. Once we got to 1990, it was the first two digits. The second digit indicated the launch site, one for Kennedy Space Center in Florida and two for Space Launch Complex 6 at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Remember when I said in episode 75 that that was one of the demands made by the Air Force before they helped fund the shuttle program? That the Air Force be guaranteed a certain number of launches a year and that those launches take place out in California? Well, now I just wanted to chime in and say that while the shuttle did fly military missions, no shuttle ever launched from Vandenberg. The letter in the alphanumeric code was based on the scheduling sequence. 
These codes were assigned when launches were initially scheduled and were not changed as missions were delayed or rescheduled. So, STS-41 Bravo meant that the launch was scheduled for fiscal year 1984, would originate in Florida, and was the second flight of the fiscal year. STS-9, which had taken off in late 1983, was the first. STS-41 Bravo was the first time an astronaut, in this case Bruce McCandless II, completed an untethered spacewalk. This first was also during a Challenger flight, when he strapped on the manned maneuvering unit, a large backpack with various thrusters that allowed an astronaut to move around untethered from the shuttle. McCandless had been an astronaut for a long time. He was just 28 when he was selected as part of NASA's fifth astronaut class, but this was his first space flight. He had helped develop the MMU, the thruster backpack, and the picture of him, alone in the vastness of space, unconnected from his spaceship, is one of the most famous space photos ever taken. While this image may induce panic in agoraphobics, I feel peace and calm when I look at it and imagine that if I were in his shoes, I would feel very similar to how I do when I am scuba diving and look up only to see 120 feet of water between me and fresh air. I really like that feeling. Now that that digression is behind us, let's get back to the shuttle mission I brought up at the top of the podcast. STS-51 Lima, the 25th shuttle mission, and another scheduled first for Challenger. In this case, bringing along non-astronaut Krista McAuliffe, America's first teacher in space. Sharon Krista Corrigan, Krista to everyone who knew her, was a 7th grader in Framingham, Massachusetts when Alan Shepard became the first American in space on May 5, 1961. She and the rest of her classmates watched Shepard's launch on a portable TV wheeled into the school cafeteria. From that moment on, she was hooked on space. She was already leaning that way. Her favorite superhero was Superman, who could fly in space, and one of her personal heroes was John F. Kennedy, who had announced to the world that America would put a man on the moon before the end of the 1960s. After Shepard's suborbital flight in 1961, she followed John Glenn's 1962 orbital mission and the rest of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo flights. She thought it would be amazing to be an astronaut, but Krista was also a practical person and didn't think she would make much of an astronaut. She got sick on carnival rides, after all. Motion sickness aside, by the time Krista got to high school, she was quite the overachiever. One of the nuns who taught her at Framingham's Marion High School recalled that there was a special vibrancy about her. While babysitting four younger siblings, taking piano and guitar lessons, and working on weekends at a dry cleaner, Krista found time to join the Glee Club, Drama Club, German Club, Ceramics Club, Girls Basketball Team, and the Student Council. Oh, and play a singing nun in the school production of The Sound of Music. By her own account, she was an average student who worked hard to make more A's than B's. 
classmates like Steve McAuliffe, who became her high school sweetheart, spent senior year fielding college scholarship offers. Krista got none. A guidance counselor told her that a girl like her had four practical career options. She could be a secretary, a nurse, a stewardess, or a teacher. If this list didn't clue you in that this was taking place in the mid-1960s, the term stewardess probably did. Well, Krista couldn't type, she couldn't stand the sight of blood, and the thought of flying, much like those carnival rides I mentioned earlier, made her nauseous, so she told her boyfriend Steve that she was going to be a teacher. She also told him that if he asked her to, she would marry him, as long as he was willing to wait until they graduated college. He was. After high school graduation, Steve attended the Virginia Military Institute 600 miles away, while Krista stayed home and attended Framingham State College. She initially majored in education until she enrolled in an early morning history of westward movement class taught by Dean of Women Carola Hagland, fell in love with history, and switched majors. Between school activities, keeping up with her studies, and a part-time job, she also drove her Volkswagen Beetle the nine hours from Framingham to Lexington, Virginia, to visit Steve as often as possible. On the drive back, she often stopped in Washington, D.C., sitting in on Supreme Court hearings and visiting the various Smithsonian museums. Krista and Steve were married shortly after college graduation in 1970. After the wedding, the couple moved to a Maryland suburb of Washington, D.C., where Steve spent the next three years in law school at George Washington University, while the newly minted Krista McAuliffe split her time between substitute teaching and waitressing while attending night classes at Bowie State University, earning a master's degree in secondary education. Krista and Steve welcomed their first child, a son named Scott, in 1976. And in 1978, after eight years in the D.C. area, Steve was offered a position at the Justice Department. When he brought the good news home, Krista told him that was great and he could stay in D.C., but she and Scott were moving to New England, which had been the couple's post-law school plan all along. Instead of the Justice Department, Scott took a position at the New Hampshire State Attorney General's office and the family moved to Concord. In 1979, their second child, a daughter named Caroline, was born and the McAuliffe children grew up in a brown three-story house their parents bought after Steve left the AG's office for a more lucrative private law practice. After moving to New Hampshire, Krista went to work teaching at Bow Memorial, a middle school near Concord, and quickly became one of the most popular teachers in the school. Harkening back to her collegiate professor, Dr. Hagland, she was a spirited lecturer who told her students that there was more to history than old white guys and paintings. History is happening now. We're part of it, she would tell her students as she tacked Time and People magazine covers to the bulletin board. Ronald Reagan, Michael Jackson, Indiana Jones, the Mount St. Helens volcano, the brand new Rubik's Cube. Kevin Cook's 2021 book, The Burning Blue, The Untold Story of Krista McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger Disaster, where I got a lot of today's material from, 
said she went so far as to bring in a used car salesman to tell her teenagers how not to get swindled when they bought their first cars and taught grammar and punctuation using the publication her students cared about most, the New Hampshire State Driver's Manual. McAuliffe's friend and colleague Eileen O'Hara says, One thing I loved about her teaching was her ability to bring the world into her classroom. One day, she walked into school carrying her books, papers, and a saucepan. A particular dish had come up in class, and a few of the students had never heard of it, so she cooked a pot of it and brought it into school so her class could taste it. In 1983, Krista landed her dream job, teaching social studies at Concord High School. And again, like Dr. Hagland, her students remembered that Mrs. McAuliffe made textbook accounts, quote, lively and even controversial. She invited various professors to come speak to her class, the director of the New Hampshire ACLU, and through a program with the local bar association, she got a volunteer lawyer in the classroom to sit in on her classes and answer students' questions. She was trying to connect her class to the real world. Twenty years after she and Steve had met as 15-year-old high school students, the McAuliffe's were living the life they had pictured as ambitious, sincere, nerdy teenagers. Then on August 28, 1984, a Tuesday, Krista picked the Concord Monitor newspaper off the porch. The headline read, Reagan Wants a Teacher in Space. An accompanying photo showed Judith Resnick, who had followed Sally Ride as the second female NASA astronaut in space, climbing from the cockpit of a supersonic jet. According to the story, NASA was looking for a school teacher to fly on a space shuttle mission. Today, I am directing NASA to begin a search, President Reagan had announced, to choose as the first citizen passenger in the history of our space program, one of America's finest, a teacher. In her rush to get the kids out the door before she had to be at school, McAuliffe didn't give the article a second thought. I am afraid that by now, dear listener, you may have grown tired of hearing me mention that NASA was constantly in fear of budget cuts. As you are well aware, that is the major reason that the Apollo program ended with Apollo 17 and not Apollo 20. And I mentioned last week that the shuttle program was under-delivering on its purported cost-effectiveness. The first shuttle mission had rekindled some of the glory of the early days of the space race, but in the years since Sally Ride's historic flight, shuttle launches had become so routine that the TV networks no longer carried them live. The Teacher in Space program was seen as a way to recapture some of the lost excitement over space exploration. Additionally, 1984 was an election year, and education was an election issue. The Reagan administration's budget cuts had led the National Education Association, the largest teachers' union in the country, 
to denounce the president as America's Scrooge on education and endorse rival candidate Walter Mondale. Though, to be fair, if history is any indicator, the NEA would have backed Mondale regardless, but I digress. With the election three months away, the president and his advisors saw a chance to promote the space program and win teachers' votes in one stroke. When that shuttle lifts off, Reagan announced, America will be reminded of the crucial role teachers and educators play in the life of our nation. I can't think of a better lesson for our children or our country. It wasn't until several weeks later, when McAuliffe was at a National Council for Social Studies conference in Washington, D.C., that she saw a booth for the Teacher in Space program and decided to pick up an application. And she didn't just pick up one application. When she got back to school after the conference, she passed applications out to her colleagues, too. She didn't want to go into space because it would make her famous. She wanted to do it because it would be another way for her or someone like her to reach students at a different and interesting level. Oh, and it also sounded incredibly fun, too. About a week after she sent in her application, she received a shiny silver and blue box from NASA, which contained the actual 12-page application, something meant to weed out anyone who thought about applying on a LARC. This second application called for lengthy answers to essay questions and multiple letters of recommendation. In one news reporter's estimation, it would take an applicant who really wanted to be competitive more than 100 hours to fill everything out and gather all the necessary additional documents. When Steve heard about the application, he was supportive from the start and encouraged her to give it a shot. Like many kids in the 1960s, he had dreamed of being an astronaut himself. But Krista didn't do it, at least not right away. More than two months passed and Steve had to remind her that the deadline was only two weeks away. He told her that, sure, it was a long shot, but it was a shot worth taking that could lead to a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Krista disagreed. She was sure that with all these scientists and PhDs who would likely apply, a social studies teacher didn't stand a chance. But then, with time running out, she decided to go for it and spent her lunch breaks writing essays about her community involvement, communication skills, and teaching philosophy. Then she tore them all up and rewrote everything on clean notebook paper in her meticulously neat cursive. When she was finished, she noticed the fine print on the first page. Please note, application form must be tight. With no time to spare, she, Steve, and her friend Eileen O'Hara used typewriters at Steve's law firm at night to get everything typed out before the deadline, and she rushed her application to the post office. It was one of more than 11,000 submitted by teachers from all over the country, including one from the woman who would become my high school freshman earth science teacher. See, Miss Helwig, I remember the story. Later that month, after the principal announced over the PA system that she was one of 79 teachers to submit applications from New Hampshire, a student came up and asked for her autograph. Taken aback, she asked, what for? With all the sincerity of a high schooler, the answer came. If she won, the signature would be a souvenir to keep forever. 
If not, it looked just like a hall pass. From the 11,000 plus applications, 114 semifinalists were selected to travel to Washington, D.C. for interviews, two from each state and the District of Columbia, and 12 others from U.S. territories, Department of Defense and Department of State International Schools, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. When McAuliffe was announced as a semifinalist, the student who had asked for the autograph cheered that it was worth more already. The week of interviews began with two astronauts talking to the group assembled at L'Enfant Plaza Hotel. Joe Allen, a veteran of two shuttle missions with a Ph.D. in physics from Yale, and Judy Resnick, the second American woman in space with a doctorate in electrical engineering from the University of Maryland, who would be making her second flight on the Teacher in Space mission. Meeting real-life astronauts made McAuliffe fret again about her lack of science training, as did Resnick joking about being one of the test subjects who gave NASA's notorious space flight simulator its nickname, the Vomit Comet. Krista couldn't imagine climbing into something that made astronauts throw up, and doubted she had any chance of becoming one of the ten finalists. In the words of author Kevin Cook, NASA's Blue Ribbon Panel spent a week evaluating the candidates. The judges included Deke Slayton, the legendary chief of the astronaut office for most of the space race, astronauts Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt, the last two men on the moon, Dr. Robert Jarvik, the inventor of the artificial heart, three university professors, Washington Bullets basketball star Wes Unsled, this is Jackson talking, not Kevin, the author. I, I have no idea why a professional basketball player was on the panel, so don't ask. But if you happen to know why, please feel free to reach out at ghostsofarlingtonpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to know the answer. And Pam Dauber, who played Mindy to Robin Williams' antic extraterrestrial on the TV comedy Mork and Mindy. When a reporter asked why on earth Dauber was on the panel, and as far as I can tell, still nobody bothered to ask about Unsel, the NASA spokesman said, Pam Dauber knows what it's like to become famous overnight. More than one of the teachers rolled their eyes at the idea of being graded by a sitcom actress, but many still lined up to get her autograph. Reflecting on the interview process, Bob Vello, a science teacher who was New Hampshire's other semifinalist, said, he didn't like his chances. In his words, they wanted a teacher who would be good on the Johnny Carson show, someone who could make the public love space again. The judges watched videotapes of the candidates, which was a huge advantage for Krista, who came across on camera as her unaffected, upbeat self. The camera doesn't lie, and Krista didn't pretend. She also didn't stick around for the announcement of the ten finalists. She flew home the night before. The next night, well after she and Steve had gone to bed, their phone rang at 3 in the morning. Steve answered and then groggily held the receiver out in the dark for his wife. It's for you, he said. It's NASA.
The other nine Teacher in Space finalists included a Phi Beta Kappa Stanford grad, a language expert, a published poet who had founded a halfway house for troubled teens, a former Air Force pilot, and three accomplished mountain climbers. And let me take a minute to give a shout-out to my beloved Idaho, the only state to have both its candidates make the final list. Six of the finalists were women, and one of the mountaineers, Maryland's Kathleen Bears, had also crossed the Atlantic in a sailboat and was planning an expedition to Antarctica. In this crowd, McAuliffe felt like the suburban mom and intermediate-at-best skier that she was. The Washington Post cited the other's achievements while describing her as personable and spunky and enthusiastic. The finalists were flown back to D.C. to meet President Reagan on June 26, 1985, and then whisked off to Houston for physical and mental tests at the Johnson Space Center. The physical exams were so thorough that Krista marveled, they even know the height of my belly button. After meeting with a NASA proctologist, she joked that she was learning about parts of my body I never knew existed. It was during these exams that one finalist was disqualified during an oxygen deprivation test. As the air in the chamber got thinner, he freaked out and began fighting NASA clinicians until they could wrestle him down and force an oxygen mask on him. Another finalist found herself beginning to panic during the same test and credited McAuliffe with talking her through it. Something about Krista was comforting. Her eyes said peace and calm. McAuliffe surprised herself by sailing through the preliminary exams and two-hour interrogation. NASA's consulting psychiatrist told a reporter, A lot of people don't see themselves as being okay. Krista has a more objective worldview of who she is and what she's about. That doesn't mean she thinks she's perfect and that she isn't changing or doesn't want to change, but she has a good idea of who she is and what she sees is pretty good. That's unusual today. I know it doesn't sound very scientific, but I think she's neat. Krista had been worried about the upcoming claustrophobic test. She had to climb into a Personal Rescue Sphere, or PRS for short. The sphere, a nylon ball linked to an oxygen supply, was only a yard or about a meter in diameter. Still in development for future shuttle missions, the idea was for the PRS to allow crew members to survive an emergency that crippled a shuttle but didn't destroy it. Initially, she was afraid that she would begin scratching and clawing to get out, but after curling up and being zipped inside, she said, It was dark and warm. I started fantasizing that I was lost in space, which which actually helped her to relax. She hummed and sang songs to herself, and when she was finally released, she asked if she could take a PRS home with her so when the kids got crazy, she could set a timer climb into the sphere, and find some peace and quiet. If the claustrophobic test had caused her to worry, the final test filled her with dread. It was time for Mrs. McAuliffe to take a ride on the Vomit Comet. But we will have to wait until next week to see how this social studies teacher, prone to motion sickness, does on the world's wildest thrill ride. 
If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a 5-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.